0: Thanks for joining the Capital Church Podcast Channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at CapitalChurch.co or send us an email at infocapitalchurch.co. At Same love, being in full accord and of what? One mind. Verse three: do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Everyone say rivalry. Do you have any rivals? You do. Do nothing from rivalry. If you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, the whole world's your rival. Haters going to hate. I, I wish I could talk more about that, but I'll move on. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, everyone say humility. In humility, count others more significant than Yourselves. Wow, that's kind of a hard thing to do, right? Let each of you look out, uh, look, uh, each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Think like this. And Wright says shallow thinking leads to shallow loving, right? So let's think deeply about this um, portrait that Paul's going to draw for us uh, as he offers this hymn or this kind of exalted poetry here in the next few verses. But he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Could you say yours? Turn to the neighbor and say, it's yours. If you are in King Jesus, this mind is yours. It's all gift. Verse, are we in verse 6? Who though he was in the form of God, now we go from uh, kind of uh, some, some rhetorical stuff, Paul's writing. Now he moves into the genre of poetry. He goes, who though he was in the form of God, we're talking about Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. I want you to feel this. This is a shocking portrait. It's a revolutionary portrait of, of divinity here. Taking the form of a servant. You and I, in the words of John Tyson, you and I do servant things. Jesus is a servant. Taking the form of a servant. Not in spite of who he is, but he takes on the form of a servant because this is who God is. Being born in the likeness of men Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And we close here, verse 11, and every tongue shall confess. That Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords to the glory of God the Father. Turn to your neighbor give Him a high five. Amen, amen, amen. All right, bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, we thank you that you are uh, here this morning. Holy Spirit, come and, and speak to us. Help us to see reality as you see it. Jesus, we love you, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. We know we can't do anything without you, so we just say, come Holy Spirit, and say what you want to say, do what you want to do, in the mighty name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen. Comparison, everyone say comparison. Comparison, I'm just going to get it, I'm going to get to it this morning, comparison is no harmless It's no harmless delusion. Comparison, or when we compare ourselves with one another, it's a half-comic attempt to analyze or evaluate our worth. When we compare, we're attempting to analyze ourselves, usually at the expense of another. Uh, This inevitably will lead either to despair, right, um, if you go on social media, for example, and you see somebody with a boat, right, if you have a boat, I'm not like judging you or anything, but you see someone with a boat, instantly you start uh, start to um, analyze or examine your life, and um, for some people, it turns in because you don't have a boat, you turn into like, God, like, what about me, right? I want that boat, God, why haven't you blessed me? and then you start to analyze yourself based on the comparison, which for some people, it leads to frustration and despair. For others, when we compare, when we analyze ourselves, it leads us to an exaggerated sense of self, right? Um, For example, on the other side of the boat, some people, and again, if you have a boat, I don't know who has a boat or not in this room, okay? But this is the only thing I can come up with. Like, you have a boat, and you post it. Some people do this. You post it on uh, your social media, what, platform, and essentially what you're saying is because you're trying to justify your existence, you're like, take that, George, from 10 years ago. I'm better than you. And and pastors and churches can do this. Um, I've seen it a lot. I'm a pastor. I know how pastors think at times. It's unfortunate. Sometimes, this happens with younger pastors, they just like start posting attendance numbers and all this stuff. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but they just obsess over their attendance. And it gets to the point where some people are more concerned about attendance than about people and what God wants to do through them. So comparison can lead to this exaggerated sense of self. Uh, funny story, um, John Tyson, uh, in his uh, book, I can't remember the title of the book, uh, talked about a friend of his who um, who he knew as just working in finances. Uh, one day, John um, went to his friend's Lincoln, Lincoln'd, whatever, can never pronounce it, profile, And on his profile, this guy who just works in finances, right? Just like his homie. He just kind of hangs out with him. Uh, His profile read this. uh, A leverage specialist in emerging markets working on derivatives to leverage maximum profit for investors with minimal risk. What does that even mean, right? You could have just said you work in finances, right? Or I'm a money guy. Obviously, there's um, this exaggerated sense of self. Is driven by this, we'll say, insatiable desire to compare ourselves. Um, that's, that's cute. We all do it, all right? It's cute. But there's a shadow side. And now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go after it right now, okay? There's a shadow side or a dark side to comparison. Comparison is, you ready for this, essentially competitive. It's essentially competitive. Now, I like competition, right i love winning how many people love winning okay four of you five of you i love winning at games monopoly i'm going to smile at you but inside i want to dominate you right when it comes to volleyball i used to play volleyball a lot in the summer i just wanted to dominate you i would smile i'm a pastor so sometimes pastors know how to mask their competitive side right when it comes to anything in life i you know when it comes to just anything i just i love winning competition isn't necessarily wrong for its own sake. But comparison is essentially competitive. And what I mean by that is when you compare or when you engage in comparison, what you're doing, you might not realize it, but what you're doing is reducing everyone in your life to a rival. We don't just think, now hear me, we don't just think some people are wrong about raising their kids. Some of you, I say this a lot, but there's no second, first opinions in the Bible. Some of you need to keep your opinions to yourself. Can I get an amen to that? I was hoping for a better amen to that. But we don't just think some people are wrong about raising their kids, or maybe how people build churches, or whether someone's eating clean or not. Often, When we think someone is wrong, um, or we assume or we think that someone has a problem, right, or we have a problem with someone, um, we work from an assumption that we're on the right side of the truth. All of that, like we think someone's wrong, um, I'll clean it up a little bit, Um, we think we're on the right side of truth, we don't realize that all of that. They're wrong. They don't know how to raise their kids. They don't know how to preach. They don't know how to do this. They don't have to build churches or build a company. All of that usually is a post hoc justification to, to uh, support our rivalizing of each other. So the real problem, the, the short and the short of it, the real problem when we assume that someone is wrong is that we have first turned them into a rival, and a competitor, and then we come up with post hoc justifications to convince ourselves that they are wrong. This isn't to say that people can be wrong or right. Can I get an amen to that? But comparison is rooted in this dark desire to tribalize life. If you're a Christian, I just think we just need to knock off this language. I hear Christians say this all the time, like, this is my tribe, stop it. No, 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 no. Tribalizing. Tribes are ferocious competitors, and they compete for resources. We are not a tribe. We are a family put together by King Jesus, right? Defined by grace, not defined by competition. Are you with me this morning? So, many... you might not think this, but this is true of every human heart here this morning. There is a dystopian warlord in every one of us. We want to rule. I knew I was gonna need to give amens on that. People want to rule in church, right? We see this in church. People want to rule in their marriage, right? People want to rule in their families. We create rivals because we want to rule, so raw foodists um, are um, in competition with other raw foodists. Vegans are in competition with other vegans. Moms are in competition with other moms, ad nauseum, ad nauseum, right? Dads with dad bods are in competition with dads who are in shape, gosh darn it, right? We are so stinking competitive, you are? Stop trying to convince yourself that you're not. Well, I never played sports. Stop it. The human heart is shaped by this desire to rule. But here's the thing we do not live in a Darwinian cosmos, which operates on rivalizing and tribalizing all of life. Darwin, I just try to, ref- I'm just trying to, I-, I think this is what he said. I'm going to paraphrase him. Darwin said, There's no organism um, that will do anything injurious to itself. It's a bold declaration on his perspective, his vision of life. Well, we reject that, right? Now, we want to rule because we are made in the image of God, right? We are image bearers. We find this in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We were created to rule with God over creation. We were not created to rule over each other. And when we compare that comparison Takes that desire to rule with God and corrupts it and turns it inside out. So, comparison makes it impossible to love, to be loved, and to experience joy. And comparison will only lead you to misery and exhaustion and a sense of joylessness. Are you okay this morning? Comparison also distorts reality. Now, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze anybody. I'm going to get to the good stuff here soon, but it's important that we hear this because we all engage in comparison. Comparison distorts our perspective of reality to such an extent that you begin to imagine when you compare yourself with somebody, oh, I wish I had their food or I wish I had their vacation or I wish I had their body or I wish I had their marriage. Stop it, stop it, stop it, right? I wish I had this. I wish I had that. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was taller, right? Yeah, I wish I was six seven. like, whatever. I wish I played for Duke, Blue Devils. It's Yeah. When you begin to imagine you as someone else, That means you, everyone say you, you in this imaginary world starts to lose its sense of existence or it ceases to exist. In any world, please hear me, imaginary or in reality, where you cease to exist, it is not a world that is better. You are you. I'm going to quote Dr. Seuss here just to get your attention. And there's nothing truer than true. You are you -er than you or something like that, right? Psalm 139, what does it say? I think it's verse 14, 15, and 16. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of us more fearfully than wonderfully, but let's move on, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, what does it say? You are a workmanship or a poem of God. So to imagine a world where you are someone else, and that's, that's the wish of every act of comparing yourself. You ultimately wish you were someone else. That is not a world that you want to be in because that's a world where you do not exist. And existence and being made in the image of God, whether you like that or not, is way better than anything else okay? And you should not waste one second of your time or your day comparing yourself. You are made in the image of God. Well, I'm bald, Chris. It doesn't matter. You are made in the image of God. Well, I have knees that I don't really, they're gnarly looking. It doesn't matter. You are made in the image of God, right? You got funny fingers like me. That's okay, right? You were an athlete and you jammed your finger way too much. You're still made in the image of God. Well, Chris, I haven't achieved a whole lot in life. It doesn't matter. You are made in the image of God. And when you compare, essentially what you're doing is you are collapsing Back on yourself. And this is what uh, Luther um, coined a phrase and Augustine as well a long time ago, homo incurvatis in se, which is a definition of pride. It means to curve back on yourself, and this is why we go wrong in life. So what does comparison, um, what is it driven by? What, is it, what are the, motive, the motives of comparison, right? Comparison is to analyze and evaluate your worth, right? It's a worth exercise. It's you're, you're, you're trying to determine, okay, where do I stack up with so-and-so? The problem is, is that you're always going to find someone below you, and you're always going to find someone above you. So you're going to be on this crazy continuum of just joylessness. Some days you're just going to be on the road, sunshine, sun's out, guns out, and you're comparing yourself with everybody else, and you're like, man, it's, it's a good, stinking day. And then the next day, it's cloudy, and all, you have some really extraordinary people come in your life, and then you're just depressed as a, as a cow. I don't even know what that means, Okay. If you are a cow, that would be pretty depressing, right? You eat grass, and they kill you, and people eat you. Horrible, <laughs> horrible. This is, this is good this morning. <laughs> I can't wait to go off on that at second service. Um, comparison is driven by the motive or its, its structure. I'll say it this way. It's structured around rejection. It's, it's structured around doubt, inadequacy, and uncertainty about where you stand in the cosmos, where you stand in the eyes of God. One author, I can't remember his um, name, wrote Status Anxiety. I think it's a book out in 2008, I think. This is what he said. He goes, again, it's in line with what we're talking about with comparison. He goes, we are afflicted. Everyone say afflicted. We are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our value. So we compare ourselves because we are uncertain about who we really are. Um, Tim Keller, uh, in his book, I can't remember the name of the book. Sorry, it's first service. I'll remember it, second service. He talks about an actress. I won't name her. You, You know her. She was given an interview, or she she took an interview, she was talking about her life and her achievements, and she, and this is in her words, she goes, my drive in life, and the reason why I work so hard, um, comes from this horrible, this horrible sense or fear of being mediocre. It's always pushing me. She defines her drive or the source of her drive in inadequacy. She goes, it's my never-ending struggle. I make music, and I think it's good, and then it's this overwhelming sense of mediocrity that drives me to make more music. In other words, she's addicted to success and achievement as a way to satisfy the question, who am I? Henry Nowen, he actually said this, success and popularity and power can indeed present a great temptation. Have you ever felt that temptation before, right? If I could just have money, if I could just have power, if I could just have whatever, then I can make something of myself. But they're seductive as he continues, their seductive quality of success, popularity, and power often comes from the way they are part of a much, much larger temptation of self-rejection. We have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable. Then success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions to our destitute condition. Comparison is driven by a sense of inadequacy. Number two, comparison is driven. Are you guys still with me this morning? Is, is shaped by pride. We talk about this a lot. Um, C.S. Lewis said the greatest sin that no one ever admits to is self-conceit. It's funny, I've, now I've been in the ministry for a long time and I've had a lot of people confess a lot of different things, from murderous rage, from one person wanted, again, just wanted to really hurt a lot of people. I've had people say that they were the God Jupiter, and we had to do an exorcism. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff, right? Being a pastor is not for the faint of heart. Can I get an amen? I've had people uh, admit to lust, bitterness, unforgiveness, but I don't think I've had anyone admit to me, maybe maybe one time, but never, it's rare ever admit that they are proud. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, uh, we we quote this probably once a year, and I love this quote. We say, and this is what he writes, we say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. This elevation of the self, or what we call self-conceit, um, is a a complete turning of reality inside out. And this pride creates enmity between us and God and people. And what we're left with is a compulsive desire to analyze ourselves, to compete, which ultimately leads to a loss of joy. So, you ready to get to the good news? <laughs> so you are like, please. <laughs> um, the good news, how do we break this um, hold on us that comparison has? Comparison hijacks our lives. It hijacks our mind. It hijacks our thinking. How do we break it? How do we get free from it? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he gives us a well, he draws a portrait of divinity, it's shocking, it's revolutionary. As we, and I'm going to take, take us quickly through Philippians chapter 2, um, Paul shows us, and this is really important for us to understand, Paul shows us a cosmos or a world drenched or dripping in or with God's overflowing generosity. That's a key, and I'm going to flesh that out here in just the next few minutes. Can you give me a couple more minutes to talk about this? The key here is that the world is drenched with God's overflowing love. And when we believe that, that's how we break the power of that competitive, acquisitive desire in our hearts. So Paul tells us, as we read in the first five verses, he says, don't do anything through vain conceit or through just selfish ambition. Right, I think it's verse four and three, th- verses three and four. What Paul is not saying is, okay, if you have a problem with self-conceit or um, selfish ambition, then this is for you. He's not saying if you have a problem. Paul is saying you do have a problem. The question is, how much of a problem do you have with this? Usually, when we when we hear self-conceit, selfish ambition, we're like, oh, that's for George. Randy, come on, this is your message, Randy. Like, Randy? Who's Randy, right? Yes, yes, yes. We're not talking about your husband, right? So, <laughs> I love this service. Usually we just, come on, we, when we think of self-conceit, I mean, because probably on the bottom of your list that you think about vis-a-vis your Yourself. What Paul is saying, we all have this problem. Charles Taylor calls this the social imaginary. We are influenced by our culture. Our culture is addicted to success and achievement and competition and comparison. So the question today is not if you have a problem. The question you have to ask yourself throughout this week is how much of a problem do you have? So Paul says we don't do anything through vain Conceit. And then he says the, the, the way that we can break or disrupt the power of self-conceit, pride, rejection, and comparison is we have to model our lives on this hymn. And we come to verse 6. Verse 6, if I can read that really quick. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2. I'm kind of throwing a little wrench into our, my message. Perfect. Who, what Paul says, talking about Jesus... Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grass. Everyone say grass. This is how we break um, the power of comparison. To and, and man, I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna use platitudes here, and I, I don't wanna psychoanalyze, obviously. The nature of Jesus, but I, just go with me on this. I, I think to grasp for what is already yours or to exploit what, what is already yours is kind of like um, saying that you are really obsessed about your dignity. And I think what Paul is saying here, um, and I'm trying to not use a whole lot of theological language, is that God is not, everyone say God, God is not. In the least concerned about his status or his dignity. Like, now he loves us, right? And he's built the world in such a way that if you fail to worship, God can't. There's one thing God can't do, and He cannot give you joy and peace and love if you fail to worship Him. But God is not obsessed over his loss of dignity by the failure of so many people throughout the world to worship him. Now, that doesn't mean that um, God is like some like, divine narcissist. He's aloof. He's indifferent to us. That's not obviously what it means. But God, what Paul is saying to us, is not exploiting, doesn't exploit his sense of privilege and power for his own sake. He's not in the cosmos, right, right? Over, he's concerned, but if you could just hear me, right? Not overly concerned about the lack of worship. Like, like a child having a, ten, a temper a tantrum in a store. God is not like that. In other words, God does not waste his time examining his worth and his achievements in human history. <laughs> God's not like, oh, wow, wow, wow. Man, I'm, man, I'm smoking today. What does that mean? Right? Like, I'm, I'm, this is a really good day today. God is not concerned about that. Here we have Paul giving us a way out of comparison. Love and joy can be possible only when we start to lose a sense of ourself. Joy, in other words, is what you get when you come to the end of yourself. In other words, joy is on the other side of self, in the words of C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and others, of self forgetfulness. One scholar, Anglican scholar, said this Joy is what happens when we are not analyzing ourselves to death. Can you just high-five your neighbor? When we're not analyzing our achievements, oh man, this was a good day, or this was a bad day, right? When we're not obsessing over our status, when, when we're not worried about what other people think about us, we are not evaluating our worth. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, the happiest moments are when we forget our precious selves and have neither. I love this. Some of you might not like this. But we have everything. We don't have our precious selves. We're not worried about our dignity. We're not worried about what people think about us. But we have God. We have fellow humans. This is C.S. Lewis. We have the animals, the garden. Maybe you don't like any of that. We have the sky. Right? We have the blue devils later today and Zion. Right? Okay, no. Um, We have all of that instead. Joy is on the other side of evaluating our worth. Last week, my wife and I, we, uh, we decided to get out of the house, which is a rare thing for us in this season. Raising a lot of kids uh, is amazing. Um, last Sunday, we decided to go downtown for a little bit. If you, don't, if you don't remember, it was a beautiful evening. Remember, it was cloudy in the morning. And then the evening just felt like glory, it was glorious. Uh, just the sun was breaking through the clouds and everything was sun bathed, you know? It just, have you ever had those days where it's just like, I just want to sing and you're not even a singer, right? That's what I felt like. And so my wife and I, we went down to, uh, we went downtown, we were with um, our boys and uh, I, I it, it, it happened just, it, it took maybe a couple minutes. Um, but my experience, I just, how do I say this? Say it this way, joy. Uh, entered my heart, and um, I started thinking about a lot of different things, how good God was, how good we have it, we have five beautiful children, we have the best church in the world. I was just thinking about all these different things, and I, I knew what I had. I had joy. And have you ever had those moments where the experience of joy is inexpressible? You, you can't put it into words. Like, and I don't even try anymore. I, like, try to communicate to my wife. It just doesn't even make sense what I'm, like, experiencing. So I just, I just use, hey, I have joy right now. You know what I realized? The reason I had joy is that I wasn't thinking about myself at all. Somehow in the experience of joy, I forgot about me and my problems And my issues or whatever was going on in that particular day, that is what happens. Joy is what happens when we forget about ourselves. Not in a masochistic way, right? This isn't isn't to say that we can't um, come to God and present our emotions and our feels and our thoughts. Please, we we want to do that. But I think in an age that is um, bent, On self-absorption this is freedom sets us free from just obsessing we're all Freudian we obsess about our inner depths and our subjective well-being I just think that if you want to enter into God's joy you got to give all of that self focus up and let God speak to you let rather than seeing yourself through and I'm can I just preach this Rather than seeing yourself through your own eyes, joy comes when we see ourselves through the eyes of our creator, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? So we are set free and we can experience joy and even the possibility of love when we lose a sense of our self. Am I being too philosophical this morning? Okay, verse 7, Paul then continues again, giving us a shocking portrait of divinity. And this is what he says. But he made himself nothing, or he poured himself out, right? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here we have what Paul says is that the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who built the vast is the vast complexity of space and time, and all the stuff that we experience, that we will call reality, redirected his power and his privilege, or redirected all of his resources for the sake of the world. That's what this says. But he made himself nothing. He poured himself out. He came, in other words, down. He became a human. Became a servant went to the cross, and it's his father that glorified the son. I want to read this. This is maybe a little bit long, but just go with me. In the vocabulary of the world, this comes from a particular author. If you want the source, I can give it to you. Down is a word reserved for losers, for cowards, and the bear market. It's a word to be avoided and ignored and certainly not discussed seriously in polite society. It's a word that colors everything, that touches even the otherwise proper company of the words that it keeps, down and out, downfall, right, downscale, downhill, downhearted, and down under. A word, it seems only on the unfortunate lips of the weak, the poor, or the dead. It's crowning blow against the word, its antonym is up. And up in our high-volume society is a word that has come to be cherished, even worshiped. It's a word that is reserved for the winners, the heroes. It's a word to be admired, possessed. It's the unspoken talk of the party. It's the way to influence who is present. Upscale, up and coming, upwardly mobile, upper class. It's the word for the chosen few and strong. Upgrade. We love the direction of up. What we see in this revolutionary portrait of God is that he comes down, he pours himself out, and redirects all of his resources for the sake of others. John 13, if that's a little bit too abstract for you, John 13, I'm going to read just a few verses, gives us a fleshed out account of Philippians I'm just going to read just a few verses. Verse one says, "Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, I love this. He loved them to what? He loved them to the end. He loved them to the what? To the end, or other translations will say to the uttermost." God shares all of his resources with us. Verse 2, and he does this knowing full well that one of the disciples, how many of you know that the disciples were a rag, they're a ragamuffin, right? I mean, they're just, man, they, got, they have a lot of issues, a lot of failure, But in spite of all that, Jesus loves them to the very end or to the uttermost. Verse 2, it says, During supper when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We come to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knew who he was, right? He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And He says in verse 7, Jesus answered him saying, what am I doing? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Verse 8. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Skip a few verses. I'm not quite sure what verse we have. We'll say verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Finally, verse 17, if you know these things, everyone say no. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus loves his disciples to the uttermost. In other words, God has freely created us, right? And what's nothing but our good and our flourishing. And we see this in the life of uh, Jesus and his relationship with the disciples. God wants you to know him more than you want to know him. And God wants to give himself fully to you by definition, love must give all of itself to us. So here's this beautiful picture. Jesus loves his disciples to the, to the uttermost, which means Jesus doesn't hold one thing back. He doesn't just give part of his heart, right? doesn't give just some of himself because he's free, free from examining his worth. He's confident in who he is. He is God's son, and he's going, he had come from the Father, and now he's going back to the Father, and so he is free to serve and to love without comparison. If you're a parent, how many parents do we have here? If you're a parent, you understand this. When you have your kids, if you have one or 32, right, I'd recommend stay on more one side, okay? But 32, if that's your thing, that's great. Parents know this when they have children, Sometimes you don't feel like it, but you take all your resources, all your power, right, all the things that God has given you, and you direct it for the sake of your children. Like, it's called sacrifice, right? You sacrifice your leisure sometimes, most of the time. You sacrifice sometimes your insanity, and some parents don't, have, don't ever make it, right? Uh, we sacrifice our money. We sacrifice those things that God has given us for the sake of our kids. That's a small picture of what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has done for you and I. The Father has redirected his resources, his privilege, his power for our sake and he doesn't hold anything back. So this means, the words of John Tyson, you don't have to compete with others for what is already yours. There's a seat, I love this. Tyson continues, there is a seat at the table for everyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus, there's a seat at the table with your name on it. The problem, these are my words, is that we've treated life as thanksgiving. Right, you got two tables got the big table with all the grown-up names, and then we got the little table with all the little people names, and there's so many people in the church that just assume my name is on the little table. I get the scraps. I get the little blessings. I get just a little bit, right? I'm just going to make it in life. God really does. I like half belong. Half belong in the kingdom of God, and that is not how the kingdom of God works. If You are a follower of Jesus. You have a seat at the table with your name on it. And here's the thing, and this is the secret to breaking the power of comparison. You don't have to achieve anything in life. You are not an achievatron. You're not a success machine, right? I don't even know what that means, right? You are not what you do. You're not an achiever. Why? Because Jesus has achieved everything for you. You are loved by God. First Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. Are you guys with me as I close? Let me just read this really quick. Verse 18 says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile, so don't boast, essentially what Paul is saying. So let no one boast in men for all things. All things. I want you to be shocked by that. All things. Well, Chris, you don't know where I come from. I come from Cuna. So... So? Well, Chris, you don't know my my background, man, it's messed up. So? So? I'm not trying to demean what you've gone through, but I'd like to simply suggest that if you're in Christ, all things are new, and if all things are new, then all things are yours. Continues in verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, this is like, this blows me away. I can't even put my mind around this. Or the present or the future. The present and the future, the cosmos, the universe. Paul and Apollos and Cephas, right? All world, all the wisdom, all the beauty, all the justification, it's ours because we belong to the kingdom of God. Yes, that's what Paul is saying. Verse 23. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 4, as we close, 7 through 8 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. This is your destiny, right? And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You don't need to compete with anybody. You don't need to compare yourself with anyone. Why? Because you are an image bearer. Why? Because you are loved by God himself. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. All things have been given, woo, come on, to you, like I'll start doing more, woo, to get your attention this morning, all things are yours, and when you believe this, you're set free from comparison, which keeps you from joy, but the most important thing, it keeps you from really loving someone, Because remember, comparison is rooted in what? Tribalizing all of life. If you're comparing yourself with someone that's better than you according to your subjective standards or less than you according to your subjective standards, what are you doing? You're treating them like a rival and you can't love. Love is suffocated in that. But when you're set free from that, when you know you are loved and you don't have to do one more thing, Jesus has achieved all the victory for you. He went to the cross and forgave us of all our sins. He makes all things new in our life through his death and through his resurrection. And when you really believe that, you're set free to love your spouse, you're set free to love those moms that really get under your skin, or you're set free to love those people in the church that I don't know. You're set free to love your neighbors. You're set free to love this town. You're set free to wash the feet of people you're set free because you're not worried about your dignity or your status or your privilege or your power because now you've come in touch with who you really are and when you, become, when you get in touch with who you are, you are set free to love just like Jesus. And that's the goal, that's the goal. Our goal is to love each other our goal is to give our lives, to pour our lives out for our spouses, for our kids, for our families, for our, the people in this church, and for the people in this city. Am I preaching too hard this morning? That's the goal. It's love. It's Jesus-styled love. But we first have to believe that all things are yours. Are, it's ours. We have all the grace, all the justification, all the beauty, all the wisdom, all the belonging, all the love that we could ever want. And when we believe that, man, we will experience love and we will experience joy. And you'll find yourself at a school, like Shane talked about, like picking up weeds, doing stencil stuff. You'll find yourself at a neighbor's house making cookies and just blessing them. You'll find yourself just loving people. Not big, maybe big stuff, but you're just going around and you just love, 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 love. You just have a bad case of loving people because you're just not, you're not wasting time worrying about you. And everyone said amen.